The national park system is home to some of the most beautiful land and wildlife you are ever going to see. And they belong to everyone. That's including you. I'm Brad. And I'm Matt. And on our show, Parklandia, we're bringing you on the road with us as we explore the wonders of the Everglades. The Petrified Forest. Yellowstone. And many more. If you want a refreshing, relatable look at the outdoors, listen to Parklandia on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. You don't have to be an expert camper to enjoy going outside. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is a special bonus episode of Family Secrets. This summer, I was so excited to have Nora McInerney, the host of the wonderful podcast, Terrible Thanks for Asking, join me for a live taping of Family Secrets at Rizzoli Bookstore in New York City. This is part one of our conversation. Well, hey, everybody. It's very exciting for me because, you know, you, you make podcasts kind of alone or with one other person in a tiny little dark space. Um, and this is the first live event that I've done for Family Secrets. Um, so that's thrilling. And what's particularly thrilling is to have Nora with me. Because I have to say that when I was starting to think about doing a podcast, I knew nothing about how to do a podcast. I listened pretty regularly to some podcasts that I liked a lot. I live in rural Connecticut. I drive a lot, and I would listen to podcasts in my car. Um, And I knew what I liked, and I knew what I didn't like, but I didn't necessarily really think or discern why. Um, When I read, I mean, I've spent my life as a writer, so when I read, I know what I like or what I don't like and why, or what's good or what I don't think is as good and why, but I didn't know with podcasts. And then I was in conversation with the um, podcast producers who I ended up partnering with. And someone in one of those phone calls said, have you listened to Terrible Thanks for Asking? Do you know Nora McInerney? And since I was sort of a podcast virgin um, and late to the party, I had not yet listened to Terrible Thanks for Asking. And then I basically binge listened to Nora for weeks and weeks because I thought, oh, I think I do know how to do this. I think I want to do this the way that she does this in the sense of holding a story. Like holding, being someone who has actually, is not just a, a, just, but you know, is not a journalist or a, um, an observer or doesn't have any skin in the game, but someone who is actually um, like on the path that is the same path that um, she's asking her guests to walk. And so there's something very different about that and very intimate about that. And then in addition to that, the artfulness and the way that there is the story of the guest, but then there is the host and the host holding the story, which is the way I always think of it. So Nora, thanks for doing this with me. Oh, and I should also add that this conversation took place Oh, but yeah. Also, thank you for having me. But more importantly, this conversation took place with each of us in our cars. And within five minutes, I was like, I mean, listen to your voice. You should absolutely have a podcast. Like, 
I was like, I feel like I don't even know what you said for the past five minutes, but like, I'm, I'm in. I will download that podcast. I would listen to you say anything. And um, I stand by that statement. Well, thank you. And thank you for being my rabbi. <laughs> I, uh, what, what, what Nora's leaving out is that when I listened to her podcast, binge listened to it, I then was like, I need to talk to her. I need, I need to find out, like, what am I in for? Like, wh- wh- what is this thing? And, um, and, and Nora got on the phone with me, and yes, we were in our cars. Like, she is at a car wash and at the car dealer. I was sitting outside this um, cafe where I go work in the country, um, just, like, sitting in my car in, like, you know, dead of winter with the engine running, kind of just looking out over a waterfall and just having, this, like, these, a couple of long conversations um, that were these deep dives into... And I guess this is a, a lot of what I would love to talk with you about today. Um, what it is to experience something, you know, on a human scale, very, very difficult. Um, in your case, um, having been widowed at a shockingly young age, the loss of your husband, Aaron, and a lot of loss compounded all at once. And then a moment where, or tell me if it's a moment, but a feeling where... Um, in which you need to do something with it other than sit with it. It was kind of a series of moments for me, but uh, for those of you who don't know my very um, uplifting story, my husband Aaron died when he was 35. He had brain cancer for three years, and I was 31, and we had an almost two-year-old child together, and he died right after my dad died of cancer, but my dad had cancer very briefly, which was like rude. I was like, Aaron already has cancer. <laughs> like you can't also get cancer. You can't die first. Um, and then my dad had died right after I had miscarried my second child with Aaron. So, um, just setting the tone for a fun evening <laughs> out for you, for you all. Welcome. And I, I'd always been a person, even when I was very little, and I know you were too, who was always like very observant, very attuned to the other, the emotions of the other people um, in my life and in my orbit. And I, I had never had anything that I thought was important to write about, which if, if you ever feel that way, like literally you can write about anything, like truly, you don't have to have, you don't have to have like a disaster happen to you. Um, but I always thought like, what would I write about? You're supposed to write what you know. I don't know anything. Nothing's ever happened to me. And Aaron had a seizure uh, at work a year after we started dating and I met him at the hospital and we were both like, man, we got to get you out of here. It's Halloween. We got to hand out candy. It just did not register to us that this, this was the thing. This was a serious thing. Both of us, Instagram had just come out. This was a simpler time. This was like, <laughs> you know... We were, he was like, take a picture, take a picture of me like laying in the ER. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's funny, that's cool. Um, he's like, take a picture, they have to put me in a wheelchair. <laughs> I was like, that's great, this is great. It's got two likes. So uh, it's, it's me and it's you. <laughs> Did you. I liked my own photo just to get, the, get that content rolling. Um, but I always had a notebook with me. It was always filled with very important work things. I worked in advertising, so like truly life or death kind of stuff happening every day. And I remember Aaron being pushed into the MRI room and him giving me the thumbs up and the door closing and that hitting me like, oh, 
this, this is this is a moment. This is an important moment, and there will be before this moment, and there will be after it. Whatever happens, like this is this is a big thing. And I sat in that hallway, and I wrote everything that had happened. And I didn't think that it was for anybody else, but a part of me knew, and I wrote this in that same notebook, that I had to keep my eyes open for this, even though I didn't want to. I didn't want to remember seeing him going like, going like this um, from that room. I didn't, I just wanted to go home and hand out Halloween candy. And at first when I started writing about it, again, this was a simpler time. I used tumblr.com. <laughs> And uh, I password protected it. I didn't want anyone knowing all my secret feelings. Like nobody cared. And then um, I just got tired of writing group emails to people, which I'm sure you've written quite a quite a lot of group emails lately. You have to keep so many up, people updated when when your life turns upside down. And I took the password off it, and I was like, I'm only going to be writing here. And it was immediately not updates about Aaron's cancer. It was observations about what it was like to be alive with him because I didn't want him to be a sad story. And I could feel that from people. I could feel people just like pitying us and feeling bad for us. And I hated it. And I, I truly thought the only people who would read something like that would be the people who knew us and already and cared about us. But uh, it it started to be apparent that more people were reading it than I knew personally. I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and so I know, I mean, I know most of the city, I would say. I would say there's a good chance I'm related to like most people I encounter there. Um, but not everybody knew us, but people could understand that feeling, that feeling of being so out of control of, of your life and having your life go so off the path that it's supposed to. When you meet someone and you fall in love, like it's just supposed to be good, you know? <laughs> it's not supposed to like immediately turn into um, a, an episode of Grey's Anatomy. So when people would begin to respond and, and they went beyond the people that you knew in Minneapolis, um, was that a feeling of um, support and community? Um, or did you feel in any way like, whoa, you know, was, was there any sense of privacy being invaded or, you know, a lot of people know stuff about me and I don't, I don't know them, but they feel they know me or, or did it feel like a good thing? I think that if the same thing were to unfold now, it would look so drastically different. Like the difference between 2019 internet and 2012 internet is crazy. It's not, even, it's not even the same world. And so the people who were reaching out were literally just leaving comments. They were, um, like it was, such a, it was such a smaller system. Does that make sense? Now it would be, there would just be so many ways to access that information and it would be so much more direct. And I think that 36 year old me in 2019 internet probably wouldn't do it that same way but I was 27 and it was the year 2012. And I, I did it the way that I knew how and that felt natural for how I was. And it did feel so amazing to have people care because it's so lonely to be sick or to have someone you love be sick and to automatically inhabit this different version of the world where you are 
where your calendar has all the normal stuff on it, like you have a 9 a.m. conference call, and then at 1 p.m. you have to go pick up your husband and take him to get a chemo infusion, and your friends care, but they also just don't know what that's like. They just don't know. So having people from really all over be able to say, I know how that feels. I know how you feel. Like, I, I care about this thing that feels too big for you to even like talk to anybody face to face about. The internet gave me a way to, to say the things that I could not say to the people who cared about me face to face. Cause it's just so much. It's so much for a casual conversation when you run into a friend of a friend at the co-op. That's a lot. You know, as, as you're talking, I was thinking about the difference between writing a book and, um, and beginning to post online and, and ultimately then what leads to making a podcast, right? So writing a book, which is something you do alone in a room in this way, I mean, when I, when I was writing Inheritance, um, I rented an office that was out of my home. Um, and just briefly, for anyone who doesn't know what my book is about, I um, made the discovery three years ago, almost exactly three, three, three years ago, that my dad, who raised me, had not been my biological father. I had never known this. Um, it was a secret that was very much kept from me by my parents. And so it was this like identity-shifting um, a massive shock that, that happened uh, in my life. Very, very different from your story. But as I was beginning to work on inheritance, I rented an office because I couldn't be in my home with all this research that had to do with early reproductive medicine in this country and just some kind of crazy details about what people were told and not told. And it was very disturbing. It's very disturbing to be told that you would be considered an abomination in your faith because, because in Judaism, they didn't, you know, rabbis didn't believe in artificial insemination, donor insemination, and so forth. So I would be in this office and I would go in every morning and it was in an empty house. A friend who was a lawyer had recently moved his law offices and the house was just sitting there for sale, but the real estate broker said to me, no one's ever gonna buy it, you'll be fine, you can have it for years. And I would go into this completely empty house and I would go up the stairs and I would unlock the door to my office and in the office there was a beetle, a bug, a beetle, and it was the only living thing in this house and I would like look forward to seeing the beetle. <laughs> And I would wait for the beetle to make itself known each day. And they'd be like, oh, there's the beetle. Wow, the beetle's finding something to eat here. It's like, still, there's my beetle. That's how solitary it was, right? So it's like, in a way, and then the experience of writing a book and publishing a book, even, is that you're not seeing people read it. They're not responding in real time. Every once in a while, someone on Instagram posts a picture of like, look, there was somebody on the subway reading your book. And it's the most amazing thing when that happens. But it's not that sense of immediate response that, that you're describing, that feeling of putting something, putting a, a raw and complicated thought out there and then immediately having this world of some version of me too. Yeah, and I think that's part of like the addictive nature of the internet and I will usually say, oh God, I hate the internet. Somebody should find it and unplug it and we should all just write each other letters and make phone calls on landlines. And, um, and I usually stand by that. 
and also some of the most amazing things that have come out of this experience would not have existed without the internet and without social media. I, I was never posting things, trying to um, accumulate followers. Um, internet celebrity hadn't, uh, wasn't a thing, I would say, in, in 2012, or at least not a thing in, in my life and my world. But what I remember about Aaron being diagnosed is immediately Googling it regretting Googling it and committing to never looking it up again. Never, never, never. Because the only thing that I found out he had stage four glioblastoma was that he was going to die. And that um, when, I, when I looked even just, just, I was like, maybe there's something on the second page of Google, like that would be like, no, he won't. Um, so I went looking for the like, he's not gonna die page. And all I found was forums of, of women. This is a cancer that mostly affects men, young men pages and pages of forums of women who were just chronicling their husband's cancer, just their, just their sickness, the, the treatment that he was getting, the pill that he was taking, the doctor that he had seen, the specialist that they had, they had gone to for a second opinion. And I thought, I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want that life. I don't want Aaron to have that life. I want to be people. I want everybody who reads anything about us to know that we are people and that this is our life. And when I look back at those early posts, I was truly creating a manual for the people who knew us and those who didn't to say, this is who we are and this is how you should engage with us. Do not feel bad for us. You can feel with us. And the people who found me were the same women who did the same Google search I did, but my blog went to the top. <laughs> of those search results and they would just see two people and then eventually a baby also living just living i never wrote about what aaron was taking when people ask me what aaron was taking I'm like frankly i don't know for a long time i thought one of his infusions was i don't know where i got this information danny i was certain i was like oh yeah aaron goes on wednesdays he gets like a vitamin his, his doctor was like what are that's chemo i was like well someone once explained to me that it was a vitamin drip he's like no one ever said that to you i'm like well that's how i heard it <laughs> And guess what? He felt great after it, way probably. To, way to be adaptive. <laughs> right? I was like, well, it looks, I mean, it's kind of the color of a vitamin. I, maybe I assumed. I don't know. Um, <laughs> very medically minded. Um, I can't remember where that story was going. My train of thought is literally just a jet ski. And so we're going to go a lot of places. So, and <laughs> so, so let me guide you a little. Yeah. So wait. <laughs> That's, yeah, I'm going to have to, I'm, should be a jet ski do, on do like a little leash. Have, I think have they have pilots, a, or I think a training shows you how much one I know could, about water yeah. sports. Yeah. I also don't know, I've never been on one, but I've seen people use them and they seem, <laughs> good, they seem extremely metaphor. dangerous and out of control. Yeah. So we don't here like I that. am. We don't yeah. like <laughs> so the way that, you know, when people have been asking me about family secrets and how it came to be, I keep on describing it as some combination of, um, this very organic thing. I never thought, oh, podcast. I listen to them, I should make one. Also, kind of a happy accident. Like some combination of like an organic happy accident. And so I guess I'm wondering what the moment was for you when you moved from, I'm posting these, um, these bull like bulletins, this kind of, in a way, educating people in 
how to how to be with me and how to be with Aaron, um, and maybe even really how to be with anyone who's ill, into something that you make that's artful and that um, and then that becomes terrible. Thanks for asking. Yeah, I I also didn't set out to be like, oh my wait, so my husband has a brain tumor. <laughs> Looks like I finally have a book. Um, <laughs> I wasn't like, great, and he's going to die? Awesome. Um, oh, great. Um, that was not that. I really wanted to write a book uh, when I was younger that was about a girl who moves to New York and wants to be a writer, but instead finds herself like in a different kind of job, and her boss is crazy. And um, that book is The Devil Wears Prada, tragically. <laughs> tragically, it was made into a classic film featuring Anne Hathaway. And so I was like, well, I guess I'll never be able to write a book. Someone beat me to the one story I have. And um, I didn't uh, write my blog, like necessarily hoping that it would be a book. I still had a job, you know, I was working every day writing tweets for discount hair care companies, uh, 7.99 haircuts. That's a full tweet, by the way. Uh, 7.99 haircut, 7.99 haircut this weekend, link. Um, got paid the big bucks for that. Um, so it's not as if I was sitting there, you know, calculating how this could be a thing. So this is how it happened. This is like my origin story is that everything that I ever posted, Aaron read. Aaron saw every picture, he read every caption, he read every post because it wasn't my story. It was the story of our family. And my dad died. Uh, which I already told you, but guess what? My dad's dead. I'm going to say it as many times as I can. My dad died and I had to write his obituary. And we have, I have three siblings and, you know, I'm, I write a draft. They all edit it. It's very, it's, it's the worst collaborative effort <laughs> that you can imagine. And because we're like, I don't know what is important to dad. Like my brother's like, I don't think that's, that part's important. I'm like, well, you know, to me, it felt like that was a really, you always write somebody's obituary uh, customarily after they die, which does make sense because it's kind of a bummer to write. But I didn't want to go through that again, and I didn't want to be the person who wrote the final word on what Aaron's life meant because he was so unique, he was so funny, and the night that he entered hospice, and we had no idea what that meant other than you can't have any more chemo vitamins, um, we went home and we put our baby to bed and I opened up my laptop and I said, uh, I think we have to write your obituary right now. And he was like, okay. Um, I really wanted to watch Game of Thrones. I'm like, we'll get to that. We will, we will do that. And we paused Game of Thrones and we sat down and we wrote his obituary together. And the first line of it is per mort. Aaron Joseph, age 35, died on November 25th, 2014, due to complications from a radioactive spider bite and uh, revealed his identity as Spider-Man and gave you know, a shout out to his first wife, Gwen Stefani. And <laughs> it mentioned you know, the, the, the band that he was in in high school. A local, a local band called the Asparagus Children. Anyone heard of it? <laughs> Weird. Okay. <laughs> Weird that didn't get past Anoka County, Minnesota. Oh, strange. And I didn't think that they would publish it, but we wrote it. And it turns out they will publish it because an obituary is an advertisement for your death. So they will, you pay for it. They'll, they'll publish whatever you want. So take that knowledge home tonight. And 
They published it after Aaron died and it went viral, like crazy everywhere on the internet that I, that I looked um, for distraction from planning his funeral, which actually he planned, so I really didn't have much to do, but implementing those plans, um, it, he was there, his face was there. And it's because it was so true to who he was and that is so rare. That's not something that you see all the time. It was, it, people People loved that. And a woman named Jessica Regal emailed me and said, I'm so sorry about your husband. Um, and you know, I'm, a, I'm an agent, maybe in like five years, you'd wanna write a book. And I replied and I was like, I probably would write it now, honestly. And she was like, that sounds insane. We'll talk in five years. And I was like, no, I really do. I want to write it now because I, there are so many, books written from distance of time. And those are wonderful. A lot of them helped me when I was, when Aaron was diagnosed after Aaron had died. And I, I wanted to write something while I was in it, while I was in all of that chaos, because being in something is also a perspective. And so I, I, two months after Aaron died, I was here in New York city, uh, wearing so many, I was wearing like an outfit from J crew, like on the, on the, I can't think of the word mannequin. That's the word. Where you know they dress J Crew models or mannequins in many layers. It's it's too many layers. Was it winter? It was winter, but not that winter. Not like a sweater, a shirt, and a jacket winter. It was too much. I thought I was going to die, but instead I sold a book. We're going to pause for a moment. The national park system is home to some of the most beautiful land and wildlife you are ever going to see, and they belong to everyone, including you. I'm Brad, and I'm Matt. And on our show, Parklandia, we're bringing you on the road with us as we explore the wonders of the Everglades, the Petrified Forest, Yellowstone, and many more. Join us as we go beyond your typical sightseeing guides for conversations about ecology, climate change, life on the road, and of course, the fun you can have as we explore the culture in and around the parks. All from the perspective of two former city dwellers who bought an RV and live on the road full time. Just the two of us and our dog, Finn. Basically, South Florida is the perfect place to go shop for Gucci bags and then kayak with crocodiles. That classic one-two punch. And for the whole $5 per tour, it's worth it. Yeah, so easy. Skip your coffee if you can't afford it. Oh, I'm not skipping coffee. I appreciate the sentiment. If you want a refreshing, relatable look at the outdoors, listen to Parklandia on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Let's go back to the idea of immediacy for a minute, because I think that that's actually really, um, I think it's key to both of our stories and both of our experiences. I, I mean, Inheritance is my 10th book. I owe, and fifth memoir. And I always believed that it was impossible to write anything good out of immediate experience, out of sort of the raw immediacy. And, um, and I think it's it's definitely like you know the commercials say like you know don't try this at home or be I for me um, the the story of inheritance I didn't want to tell from my rocking chair someday I wanted to capture it as it was unfolding or I maybe was a half a step away from it enough to have a little bit of a way of pivoting toward it and away from it but it felt essential that it be told that way. Um, and I wonder whether to take it a step further that in podcasting, there's such intimacy in, in podcasting. It's intimate in the way that it's made in the conversations that 
you know, that you have with your guests or that I have with my guests is intimate in the way that it's listened to, uh, at least as intimate as reading. Because, you know, you've got these, you know, AirPods in or whatever they're called. And, you know, or you're in your car alone. People don't have, like, podcast listening parties. At least not yet. I mean, maybe it'll become a thing. Um, but it's something that people do by themselves. And so there's this, there's this voice in, literally you become the voice in someone's head. So, so then how does, how does it go from, you know, you're in these J. Crew layers and you sell the book and it's two months after Aaron died to um, it becoming the birth of a podcast? Did you intend for that to happen? Because another thing that I think that happens with people a lot um, when they see, see something that works, a book, a short story, an essay, a podcast, there's always like retrospective intentionality. Like, oh, this must have been the plan all along and that's why it's a thing. And Everyone thinks almost, that about me. It's so flattering. Hmm? Everyone yeah. thinks that. I'm like, oh, yeah, it was highly strategic. Right, very strategic. Right, it was on, it was on a yeah. list of like, this is how you're going to go yeah. about it. It's almost never the case that that's what it is. No, I, uh, I was unemployed. So an unemployed, widowed mom with a toddler and a mortgage. I sold a book. I started trying to do freelance copywriting on the side, but I had this other full-time job, which was managing the emotions of anyone who had read that obituary and anybody whose husband was sick and anybody's husband who had died. And they would email me. They would email me because I was a person who had said something about it and their friends and family didn't know how to talk about it. And so they weren't talking about it. And so I spent every night going through my emails and replying to every single person so that they would feel like someone out in the world heard them and, and felt with them and that they weren't so alone because you have to be pretty alone in this world to spill your guts to an absolute stranger over email um, in the middle of the night. And I know because I've done that. I have done that. Cheryl Strayed, you got, <laughs> gotten several messages from me. <laughs> like, um, I did not, I did not think, oh, like this would make a, this would make a great podcast. Everything that I've done, because I also feel I am a lucky person. Aaron died, he did not have life insurance. I quit my job by not going, which was, I don't advise that. Um, <laughs> but I was like, oh my God, I forgot. And also I don't want to do it. Um, but so many people, if you are lucky enough to be employed full time and have benefits, go ahead tonight and read them. Cause you probably have three to five business days of bereavement leave. If your husband dies, if your wife dies, you have no time. You have to get back to real life and Many, many women who I was talking to or fielding their, their emails, they didn't have that. They had nothing. They had even less than nothing. Erin did not have life insurance, but I had a mom who was still alive who had a house that I could and did end up living in as a 31-year-old mom. That felt great. <laughs> we were not the best of roommates, but I still do love her. Um, and it, mostly it's mutual, I do feel. But... Terrible Thanks for Asking was like the next, the thing that I could do that seemed like it would, it would help, it would, it would help all of these people feel less lonely. So the first season is every single story is from my inbox. My first 
season, all 10 episodes are all people who had emailed me before I had a podcast, before I had anything, people who had just sent me a message about something. I replied to them and said, so if I had a podcast, which I don't, um, would you want to be on it? And they were like, that sounds great. The title is a rejected title for my first book, <laughs> right? Um, so I had a title, I had an inbox full of, of sad stories and I had um, nothing more to lose. And so I sent out a tweet and I said, who in Minnesota makes podcasts? Great, didn't even Google it, okay? I was like, right to, right to Twitter. And if I saw that tweet, I would be like, Google it doofus, but someone who's nicer than me was like, there is, there is someone who makes podcasts in Minnesota. His name is Hans Buto. And that man became my producer and we created this show together. And, and that's, that's how it all happened. And I do, I do, I would love to be able to say like, this was all the plan, but really I do know one thing, which is that the plan was to at least make a thing. Every episode is a thing that somebody can point to and say like, it felt like this, or it parts of it, it feels like at five minutes and 38 seconds, that's how I feel. <laughs> that's how I feel. So you and I talked on the phone the other day about whether this kind of work is therapeutic or cathartic. People will often say about writing memoir and they will also say about um, this kind of podcast, either family secrets or terrible things for asking, a feeling of um, is this somehow like a form of therapy or um, I remember years ago as a memoirist, somebody for the first time asking me a question about my first memoir, the, the um, it must feel so cathartic question. And at the time I actually found it like I bristled at it. It was like, it's not catharsis, it's art. Um, and of course, these are not mutually exclusive. But I wonder, and I actually don't find writing memoir cathartic, but I do and have found the conversations that I have um, either when I'm, I mean, the various places where I record family secrets, my basement in Connecticut and my son's old playroom, like hunched over my recording equipment with like the big stuffed, you know, hippopotamus from when he was two sitting in the corner and like, you know, baseball, you know, paraphernalia and stuff like that. Um, very glamorous. Or in the studio uh, with my guest on the phone or with my guest in the room. Um, and it almost doesn't matter where or even whether the guest is in the room. And actually, I remember you saying to me early on, it can feel even more intimate when the guest is not in the room. You're just in this kind of cocoon of just voices and silence and pauses and, um, and this, this interaction that can feel almost like a confessional booth in some way. And to me, that has felt... I don't like words like cathartic or, or therapeutic, but there's something that happens that really feels transformative, both hopefully for the guest, um, but for me. So I'm wondering, you know, you were talking about starting it thinking, I want to give something to all these people who are flooding my inbox, but what has it done for you? Also, people who listen to your podcast find it therapeutic. And that's a very good. I hear no, a lot a of like sobbing, sobbing by, by the side yeah. of the road, pulling yeah. the car over. Everyone's yeah. looking for so a way for. to cry in their car or on the subway, whatever <laughs> is available to you. Big fan of like a good public cry. The first season sounds so different than the current season. And that is because it was my 
form of therapy, I was, I mean, so much was happening in my life that had not been included in the book because it happens. You write a book and then life has happened after you turned in, after you turned in the final draft and after it comes out and all of these things had happened, I had um, met a man and I'd fallen in love with him and we had, uh, I'd gotten pregnant not in that order, and uh, and we blended this family, and it was so wonderful. And also, for the first time, I had stopped moving since Aaron died, and I was present with like love and with like this newness, and it was my grief just catching up with me. And you can hear that in the first season for sure. Is that all of the things that I thought that. Um, that I had processed by writing a book or by starting, you know, this nonprofit uh, still kick in that that um, honors my husband and anybody going through something hard by just staying busy. I I felt like maybe maybe I wouldn't of I, yeah I felt like I would avoid the grief like it would expire and I'd have like I'd have just avoided it like a genius like I don't know why everybody doesn't do that like you just stay really busy Outrunning. time passes and like you've ducked down and the grief has shot overhead it totally missed you and instead it had completely just decimated me and so much of that first season is me digging through that along with my guests and their stories that are about n- not that at all you know what's so interesting Nora though is is it's possible for something to be as beautifully produced as your show is and to be starkly honest. They're not, they're not mutually exclusive. Um, I think we think, to go back to Instagram and social media, like, that the more produced something is, the more it means that it's kind of burnished and therefore somehow not real, not true. Um, and yet, I think that when I first heard your show, I thought, oh, that... I want, I want to do something that's going to be beautifully produced, that can be heard and listened to and shaped, and there, there's, there's music in there, and there's sound in there, and there's real artfulness in there, and at the same time, it's, it's true, and there's rawness, and there's honesty, and there's vulnerability, that oft overused word, but it's really there within the container of this um, beautifully produced um, thing yeah (laughs) Danny's like really smart sometimes I'm like yeah I completely agree it is art (laughs) we're going to open it up to questions in a minute Um, one time someone posted a picture of us at a different event and was like the queen the joker and I was like it was accurate I think that was you it was not me I reposted it because I was like that's actually that's actually very accurate and in the picture I'm like and Danny's like, we're talking about a book. I'm like, are we? Um, so episode zero of my podcast is was not planned. We were not making an episode zero. We we're supposed to start with number one, but I had a baby right before the podcast was supposed to come out. I had not told anybody that I was pregnant, including the people who worked on my podcast, because I do believe the world to be like an inherently sexist place. And I just was like, I don't know if anyone knows I'm pregnant. Are they really going to like try to promote a show made by a woman? who just had a baby. I don't know. Maybe I'm not being generous enough, but that's what I did. And you can hear in that episode, um, I'm holding a baby. I'm holding a two-day-old baby and recording a podcast. And because it just felt 
like I wanted to put something out there that was that was real and that was produced. I did it in a studio. I took my baby with no immune system out into the world. I was like, honey, the world needs this content. Um, but because I'd been so deeply depressed during my pregnancy and I was automatically just had postpartum anxiety and postpartum depression and I wanted to tell that story that sometimes it is more complicated than it looks because from the outside at the time my life did look and was it was really good like it's hard to write a better happy ending than a, a widowed mom meeting a divorced dad and all the kids falling in love and then you move to the suburbs and you get a minivan and a rescue dog that's a pretty good story and also i was so sad i was just so sad so, um, so yes, all, and plus all the smart things Danny said. <laughs> yeah, I, so I think, I, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to, you know, when it comes to, I mean, everything that we're talking about, we're talking about life. Um, and I think both of our shows are really about that, really about life. And we talked a lot um, earlier about, again, the kind of burnishment of social media and all that stuff. And I feel like there are these places out there that are like respites from that, you know, that are, you know, like it's really not, um, I mean, I know for myself that I am constantly working against, I don't want people to mistake my life for being um, perfect, fabulous, photoshopped in some way. And I mean, these days, there's probably not much of a chance of people doing that, but it's happened a lot over time. And my feeling is to kind of move into that place of, let's talk about the and here. You know, not the either or, but the, like, this and this. You know, the, the, you, you have talked a lot about, um, and early, early in uh, the first season, you, you, you talk about loving two men. You know, having two husbands, mm -hmm. having a child with each of them. And it's this great, you know, comic, of course, because it's you, but also a very, very real sort of introduction to this is this messy, complicated, beautiful, painful, tragic, which is to say human life. And I think that that's what, you know, that's what resonates about these kinds of stories. And I think it's like that for most people, but we just don't know it. Typically, especially in marketing, um, marketing books, like this book is, it's fun. It's an escape from every day. But the reason that podcasts like this work and are popular is because what you need an escape from is this oppressively optimistic American um, social media in, uh, uh, fan, but just like this this oppressively optimistic point of view, which is that if something happens, then the next thing that happens is like you get over it. If somebody hits you in the face with a lemon, it turned a lemonade on your face or like a nice vitamin C serum <laughs> while, it, while it was on there. Um, like you're, you're definitely supposed to find the silver lining as soon as possible so that people can feel inspired by you. And we need stories that are not just bummers. Nobody's interested in, in a story that is just a sad story. And also nobody's story is just a sad story. Even if your story makes people really sad, even if people are like, Danny, 
your dad wasn't your dad. Like your story is also a story about love and, and, and life in all of its complications. And I do want my kids to know more than anything that this is not the exception to the rule, like at all. Like this is just the rule actually, like really, really bad things are going to happen in your life and also really good things. And then most of it is going to be so dull. You won't remember it. (laughs) Like today on the airport, uh, on the airport, on the airplane, I looked over, there's a woman sitting next to me and I was like, I'm sorry, did I stand up to let you in? Or did you have to climb over me? And she was like, you stood up. And I was like, I have no memory, no memory of standing up for you. Just wanted to make sure I'm not the worst person on this plane. That is how dull most of our lives are. Like, I was like, I don't even remember standing up for you, lady. That's how nope. little of an impression you made of me. Like, so any time, like, and it's all temporary. And most of it is going to be just like a five. And that's a pretty good day. And so when you're having a one, like you'll be at a five soon enough. And when you're at a 10, like savor the flavor because you're gonna be leveling it out all over again. Virginia Woolf describes that as the cotton wool. It's like the cotton wool of daily existence. That's what we're in most of the time. And there's one thing that I wanna like just end this part of the conversation with, which is terrible things for asking. There's also, there's, I have this dear friend, Buddhist teacher, some of you may uh, know or have encountered, named Sylvia Borstein. Um, and um, Sylvia's version of that, when somebody says, how are you, is, couldn't be better, always true. Not couldn't be better, but just couldn't be better. Can't be better than I am right now. So maybe that's the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> the sequel, pretty okay. Pretty all right. Yeah, um, thank you for inquiring. I'd like to thank Rizzoli Bookstore for hosting the live taping of Family Secrets and Derek Clemens for recording it. And I'd like to thank Nora McInerney. If you haven't already, be sure to check out and subscribe to her podcast, Terrible Thanks for Asking. Family Secrets is an iHeartMedia production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. In the Montgomery County, Maryland courthouse, there are thousands of pages of documents detailing the horrific murders of three innocent people. As soon as I heard the details, I knew my dad was involved right away. Instantly, I said, it's Lawrence. But at the time of the murders, Lawrence Horn was clear across the country. I'm Jasmine Morris. From iHeartRadio and Hit Home Media, this is Hitman. Listen and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, on the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you listen to podcasts.